Welcome to The Common Room, a series of podcasts by the LSE Higher Education blog. Today's podcast is a follow-up to More Than a Pivot, Thinking Critically About Our Pedagogy, a workshop in June that was hosted by the Digital Education Network and the Institute for Curriculum Enhancement at Lancaster University and the LSE Higher Education blog at the LSE Eden Center for Education Enhancement. Sean Michael Morris was the invited guest speaker, but unfortunately couldn't make it. And Jesse Stommel, his longtime collaborator, kindly stepped in. The workshop threw up a number of thought-provoking questions, both during the session and on Twitter. And we would like to thank the participants for their valuable contributions. This podcast is intended to be an extension of that workshop in June, where we reflect on that discussion and take the conversation forward. How can we practice and enact pedagogy critically during this online pivot? And we are absolutely delighted to have Sean join us this time and participate in person. At our podcast today, we have four panelists, Sean Michael Morris, Sarah Kamasha-Felish, Dustin Hosseini, and myself, Leanne Sequera. Sean is a senior instructor of learning design and technology in the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Colorado, Denver. He is also the director of the Digital Pedagogy Lab and has authored and contributed to many books and publications in critical digital pedagogy. Sarah is an assistant professorial lecturer for the Atlantic Fellows in the Social and Economic Equity Program at the International Inequalities Institute of the LSE and also a member of the LSE Decolonizing Collective. Dustin is a digital education facilitator at the School of Management at Lancaster University. And I, Leanne, am an academic developer at the LSE Eden Center for Education Enhancement and the editor of the LSE Higher Education Block. And last but not least, a big shout out to Chris Doughty, our fantastic podcast producer who makes these conversations possible. So let's get started. Uh, but before we do, it would be nice to say hello and hear from our other panelists. Hi, Sean, how are things in Portland? Things are great. Um, and uh, uh, we, we're having a very cool summer here. Um, I'm, I'm very busy planning uh, Digital Pedagogy Lab for this year, um, which has gone fully online. Um, but uh, otherwise, things are, things are really good. That's great, thanks. And Dustin, how are things in Glasgow? Uh, it's similar to where Sean is, so it's been a cooler summer this this year, I think, and a bit more rainy lately. Great. And Sarah, where are you joining us from? I'm joining from East London. Uh, and uh, it's actually been a wonderful summer so far, but I tend to like it hot. So the hotter the weather, the better. And busy preparing for the next academic year. Um, for the program I'm on, we're going to be completely online. So um, it's a, a complete rethink about how we teach. Great. Thank you so much. This has possibly been one of the most British introductions to a podcast where we start off discussing the weather, but uh, that's great. So, uh, so one of the things, if you don't mind, I'd like to start the conversation off with is, uh, is a discussion that happened that occurred in the, during the session in June. Uh, and it was about getting students to turn on their camera during Zoom calls, so something very specific. Uh, and, and this got, uh, you know, really got quite a few people interested in talking about their experiences. 
And some of the things coming up were, uh, does it enable a better quality of interaction and communication in the class, if you can see everyone's cameras, or is it an invasion of privacy? Does it turn the students into an unwitting data point in the surveillance capitalism economy? And I was wondering, uh, you know, if, if you would like to share your thoughts about this, either from your experience or, or from what you've seen and heard. Sure, um, I'll start off. I think this is something that we've talked about a lot, actually, in um, in sort of the groups that I that I that I speak with, uh, and it, it's become a real issue because so many people, as soon as we pivoted to online in the spring, um, so many people immediately um, went to Zoom. Um, because they they wanted this sort of synchronous thing. They wanted to be able to have, an, you know, uh, they wanted to be able to port their classroom into an online space as much as possible. And so there were a lot of there were actually a lot of uh, faculty that I talked to who said that they that they required students to turn their cameras on, and if they didn't, um, the student even if they were like present with their camera off, they wouldn't be considered in attendance for the class. So they they had to see their faces. I'm, I'm actually not. Like I'm definitely against the whole idea of surveillance capitalism, but I'm actually going to talk about something slightly different than that, and that is sort of more the the personal side of this, um, because um, you know I've I've been working remotely for years. I've been working remotely for um, well over a decade, and um, I first started using Zoom when I was at Middlebury College years and years ago, and um, and so I have the I have the privilege of understanding how the, how the platform works and understanding what people are seeing behind me. Um, I actually work really hard to make sure the lighting is good and that you're not seeing anything that I don't want you to see. Um, behind me, I can close my door so people don't wander in and out. Um, at the most, you may see a dog come and go. Um, other, I mean, students often don't have that sort of privilege. Uh, here in the States anyway, we, we often have a situation where students who may have computer access on campus, when they go home, they have to share a single computer with their entire family. And so that computer may be located someplace or maybe a laptop and they may not have privacy. Uh, you may end up having a, a student sitting in class and you see their, their family behind them or you see some other place in their house behind them. And so I feel like this isn't, that's, that's not really appropriate. You would never ask, um, okay, so I'm going to, we're going to have class in your living room. That cool. Um, I don't think that we would ever do that. We wouldn't go that direction. So asking people to turn their cameras on is, is problematic unless we can um, provide them with sort of the guidance around how that can be done um, and in what what the best sort of conditions are for that so that we give students the opportunity to sort of set up a space and then we give them the opportunity to say hey i don't have a space that i can set up i share a room with my with my little brother i you know whatever it may be if we can open that conversation with them as opposed to just forcing them to do it as opposed to just sort of making it part of their grade um, I think that we can actually have really productive conversations about what this digital technology means and what it means to have people looking in on your home. Um, and I mean, teachers are often doing this too, but I've also worked with faculty who don't want to turn their cameras on. So it's, it's the same sort of issue. Yeah. So I, I think I, I, I sort of go straight to the personal side of this and, and the kinds of conflicts that are, that it immediately brings up for students and their homes. Yeah. Um, I think you've sort of hit that nail right on the head in a way, especially when you're talking about like what's going on in this background, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I work in an in international inequalities institute, so it's not going to be surprising that my first instinct is to go straight into the inequalities that having a camera means. 
um, from things uh, as simple as the quality of your broadband, right? I mean, how many times have we been in meetings where you need to turn off your camera because it keeps cutting in and out? Um, and that's made worse when you have maybe, you know, your student is in your class, but maybe that student has three siblings who are also sharing that internet connection or a parent that has to share that internet connection from work. So by assuming that everybody has the ability just from a technological perspective, access to high-speed internet to be able to see each other is, is, is an assumption we can't afford to make. Um, so I, I would definitely say that. And it's true. I mean, I've been in meetings where colleagues don't want to turn it on. And yes, from a comfort perspective, I, I read facial expressions. I know if someone's paying attention based on what they're doing, the smiles, the giggles, when I attempt to be funny, I don't always succeed. Um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, that's sort of what makes learning, right, is those interactions. And I can understand that instinct to want to force the camera on. But what you're doing is creating a situation where we claim that you're not participating unless I can see you're participating. And that's not a safe claim to make. Um, you know, there's housing poverty. There is lots of people at home. There's all sorts of reasons why that camera can't be on. And to force that camera on is to ensure that we're adding more stress onto students that are already stressed by the situation. So that's kind of my take on it. Uh, and I was just going to add that sometimes the numbers won't allow everyone to turn their cameras on anyway. So, you know, if you have a, a workshop or a seminar with, say, 50 people, you just won't see them all. So it doesn't really make sense. There's no really argument to see all of them. Um, if people really want to track students, they could send out a survey or something you know, an, an exit ticket type thing where they get them to answer a question. Um, I know in the UK context, they don't take attendance unless it's a seminar. Lectures are not surveyed. Um, sorry, attendance isn't taken in lectures because there's too many people. There might be a sign-up sheet, especially for international students because there are visa-related issues um, that they have to address and make sure they're addressing. But... Traditionally in the UK, attendance was never linked to um, to academic success or progression. So you, in theory, could skip a lot of your uh, classes, lectures, and just you know still pass. Coming from the US system, I would say I think we should <laughs> give them some credit for attending because being present takes a lot of effort uh, for some. And if they're engaging... Now, I come from a language background where you kind of have to be present. It's, it's harder to learn a language in isolation. Um, you can do it, but it takes a lot more effort. But as far as cameras, I mean, it seems like lately with colleagues, we turn them on maybe the first time we're meeting and we've never met before, or if we really want to see the other colleague. But there's been plenty of meetings where as colleagues say, I'm, they're lecturing into the void, and they don't know how to do that. So that's the other way of looking at it, the flip side. Teachers suddenly are thrust in situations where they're talking to a screen, and there are people, there are eyes on the other side of the screen, you know, but they don't know how to talk to those eyes because they don't know what facial expressions are being made and so on and so forth. Thanks. That's really, really interesting, and it's kind of also 
really, it's a weird coincidence because I've had to turn my camera off a number of times during, you know, the what, 10 minutes we've been online primarily because I'm experiencing some sort of lag uh, and other issues as well. So it's, it's really quite interesting about this. Uh, uh, and thanks for sharing your thoughts. Uh, who has another question that they'd like to kind of bring up and, and discuss and throw around? I guess maybe the next question, if we want to move on, is how can we convince colleagues to engage uh, with digital pedagogies or digital education? From my own experience, the best way it's happened is where colleagues have come to me with a problem. So they say, especially in terms of COVID-19, they say, we have this issue. You know, we want to do it. How do we do it? So an example might be delivering uh, online exams or doing exams online at a distance. So while still maintaining some kind of academic rigor, for example. So then through an hour long conversation, we would talk about the, the different options. Uh, and I know from my own practice, the best way seemed to be where lectures came with that problem with an open mind and listened to all the solutions without immediately saying, no, that won't work. But the open-mindedness is something that I don't have an answer to. You know, we can't open people's minds. What do you think? So I've done I've done a fair bit of work trying to help faculty who suddenly are faced with teaching online um, in much more controlled situations than what we faced this last spring. But but the the challenges are very similar um, because they're often being, for example, I've worked with faculty who in like in a cohort who have been told by their administration, "You are going to teach online." you are going to develop an online course. Um, and so my job is then to come in and sort of triage that a little bit and try to make this look like it's going to be an interesting thing and sort of fun. So in that question um, about how do we convince colleagues to engage with digital pedagogies, I think that I think there's a couple of different ways to look at that. In terms of the pedagogy side of it, I actually try to try to help faculty understand that their pedagogy, their essential pedagogy is not going to change when they go online. That, that, that they can learn to bring what's most necessary to the way that they teach into an online space. There are tools to help them. There's all kinds of things you can do. There's techniques, but, but that ultimately what they, the first thing they need to do is sort of look at their pedagogy. What is it that you think is the most important thing that you do? And if the most important thing that you do is lecture to your class, great. Bring that online. That's actually really easy. If the most important thing that you do is making human connections with your students, then let's figure that out. Let's find a way to make that happen in an online class. The, the sort of requirement around that, though, is to break down the, uh, the sort of presupposition, the, the assumptions about what online learning looks like. So one of the first things we have to do is sort of dissect that a little bit and say it doesn't have to look like the LMS or the BLE. It doesn't have to look... Um, like this very controlled sort of um, model where you have to just fit your, your teaching into these boxes. Actually, you can bring this into a different, you can bring your teaching into these, into these spaces in a brand new way. Um, you just have to kind of develop a sort of literacy around how those tools work in order to do that. Um, in terms of the convincing part, I don't, I actually don't try to convince anybody to do digital pedagogy. Um, I, I am an advocate for digital pedagogy. I run digital pedagogy lab. Um, clearly it's a thing. But, but I actually don't try to convince anybody to do it um, under normal circumstances. Obviously, these last 
these last several months, it has been a requirement to go on to uh, using digital technology in some way. And I think that most people have sort of default to Zoom, like we were just talking about. They um, they just fall into the, the easiest um, technology that makes it seem like you can replicate the classroom in an online space. So again, there's there's a there's a big piece of this that's a kind of digital literacy, uh, understanding how tools work and and what you can actually do with them, but also the difference between what you can do in an on-ground space and the online space. All of this is a matter of discussion and collaboration. So it's it's never just a matter of me saying to somebody, here's how you're going to do it, and we're going to do it this way. It's always a matter of what do you need, what what do you want to have happen here, what are you afraid of losing. And then let's work with that. I think what you just uh, said, Sean, actually leads me to a different question because um, you're talking about um, sort of having uh, faculty, teachers, academics think about what they do in the classroom, like what they teach for what they're trying to do. And then once they understand why they're teaching that way or, or what is it they try to do, then move into the digital. And, and that sort of leads me into this question of to what extent and in what ways is learning technology actually driving the way we learn? So it's actually the reverse that's happening. I mean, do you guys have thoughts on that? So that's a that's an interesting question, Sarah, and it and it is kind of in I wouldn't say stark contrast to what Sean was saying, but but it is something I think about a bit. So having done having been a learning technologist and being kind of quite closely involved in technology but also being fairly skeptical about you know how it's often used uh i think it's difficult in a time like this uh where we have you know social and cultural norms that rely so heavily and are mediated by technology to such a great extent that I think unwittingly, whether we are, at least whether I'm aware of it or not, uh, I, I am a kind of technophile. So it's, it's very difficult for me to step back and answer this question objectively. Having said that, you know, things like the medium is the message, uh, techno determinism, these things have been written about, theorized extensively, you know, there's been evidence provided. And it does make me want to be, or at least try to be, more skeptical. So to give an example of learner analytics. And now that is something that has only come about uh, fairly recently. And I say recently, I'm talking about possibly the last 10, 15 years or even longer, but has come into mainstream uh, usage, I think, perhaps over the last 10 years or so. And that's something that's only been enabled because of the technology. Uh, perhaps one could say the desire to do so has always been there. Uh, but that it is now it's now happening very much. And uh, it's been, you know, I mean, there have been papers written, there's been evidence collected to show that it does tend to disadvantage uh, underrepresented minorities, the kind of things that are being counted, especially things like uh, indicators of retention, indicators of interaction, of participation. Uh, and it's not just underrepresented uh, minorities, it's also uh, anyone who kind of deviates from the good student profile. So uh, those are all really interesting issues for me. And also to what extent uh, are these kind of learner analytics being used to further institutional agendas in their rankings or, you know, funding or attracting more students. So it's quite interesting in terms of how this is 
used and there's this kind of bait and switch idea that has come from I think uh, Shoshana Zuboff uh, about how we get students as well as ourselves used to these ideas and then it becomes very difficult to, to, to look at it more critically. So I think definitely practicing and being more aware of perhaps being more aware and practicing how we can be you know more critical uh, of these things is is important. I got nothing to disagree with you on that. If I'm going to be honest, I think you've you've hit a lot of points right on the head. I mean, I have a lot of like um, anxieties about learner analytics because it's you know it's been mentioned already in this podcast, and I think it's going to get mentioned again. This notion of of surveillance and that learning doesn't happen unless we're there to witness it. Well, I don't know about you guys, but my best learning, nobody was there to see. Like those aha moments where I went, oh, oh, that's what this is about. Um, no one was in the room to witness them. Like they were at times when I was studying or when I was reviewing for an exam, or even sometimes it was in the classroom, but I wasn't about to vocalize that moment of, oh, I get it. And to me, like this, this drive to capture everything and to count it and to analyze it and to determine like, okay, the good student numerically looks like this and does this. And unless we see these numbers, learning hasn't happened is the complete antithesis of what learning is, especially the thing that happens like, you know, six months down the road when you're doing something completely different and you suddenly go, oh, wait, that's what Dr. So-and-so was talking about. I get it now. And you can't quantify that. I mean, I suppose you could in some longitudinal way, but the idea that we must capture it in order to demonstrate that learning has happened to justify our existence as universities or as, as educators goes very much against the whole philosophy of what education is, or at least mine. I think then, the point that you're... Oh, go ahead, Dustin. Sorry. I was just going to say, but then how do we, I mean, that sounds like it speaks from a point of uh, a privileged education. What about for the ones who are less privileged? How do we kind of ensure that they're on the right track and so that they don't fail or fail out rather? Because learning analytics, the arguments for those, are, it can help with that. Sarah. Sorry, I was raising my hand because I know Sean wanted to speak, but I want to answer that question. First of all, we asked them. How about we just ask them, we give them space to reflect and we say, hey, how much did you learn this year? What really spoke to you? And let them tell you. And I can see that working on a master's course of, say, 50 students. But when you have an undergraduate course of, say, three, 400 students, how do we do that? I have. <laughs> so we're so. Everyone listening, we're on camera. I can see Dustin laughing. That's why I just laughed. So, for example, I to answer that direct question, uh, Dustin, I have actually taught in fully online situations, never meeting my students, never having any kind of synchronous interaction whatsoever, you know, up to four or 500 students in a term. Now, they weren't all in the same class, but four or 500 students during a single term. And, and I've felt like I've been able to make personal connections with all of them and ask them the way that Sarah's saying. Um, I have never used analytics um, in any way, shape, or form um, when I'm teaching. I have spoken with people who feel like analytics are a really good way for them to see sort of red flags for, hey, this student needs attention. 
So let's go look at that. Let's go look at that. And I think that's, that can be okay as long as we're willing to negotiate the fact that we are capturing that data and, and that data is going somewhere, um, and somewhere that we don't necessarily have control over it any longer. So that's, that there's a, there's a compromise there. And if we're willing to make that compromise, then, then okay. And if we know that our students are willing to make that compromise as well, then okay. That's a digital literacy. That's a, that's a thing that people need to understand about the technology that they're using. Um, and I don't know that they always do. Lots of, lots of, lots of, uh, faculty use Turnitin. Lots of faculty use Proctorio. Lots of faculty use these tools that capture data, then sell them back, or they capture data and they hold on to it and they do all kinds of, we don't know what they're doing. They're making Frankenstein over there. Frankenstein's monster to be technically correct. Um, and so, there is, there has to be that conversation. There has to be that sort of, if, if there's going to be any kind of negotiation, any kind of, uh, compromise made, there has to be some sort of, uh, real conversation around it. Um, I wanted to speak just really quickly to something that Sarah said before. And actually, um, something that Leanne was talking about too, in terms of this idea of sort of becoming used to technology and sort of understanding it, getting to a point where we think, well, this is the way that it's done. Um, analytics are done this way. Turn it in is just always used. Well, because I'm, a, I'm terrified of plagiarism. We have to recognize that, that these are, these are often uses that were no, that were not necessary before the technology came along. Um, when the, when the first iPhone came out, uh, I was one of those people who stood in line outside the, outside the Apple store and got my iPhone. It was there for eight hours before I got my phone. I didn't even know what it was going to do. I didn't understand what apps were. No one knew what apps were at that time. I just bought the iPhone 11. Um, because I keep upgrading because now it's necessary, but it wasn't necessary and it isn't necessary still. Um, but it's become part of my lifestyle and it's become part of the way that I communicate and work. And it didn't ever need to do that. Apple told me it should. And so I, and I believed them because it was cute and it was, it had just the right weight in my hand and the apps are colorful. Um, and so all of those things convinced me. When we hear arguments against plagiarism, when we hear arguments for why we need to use proctoring services, these are not arguments that are coming out of education. These are, these are arguments coming out of the educational technology. And, and we need to recognize the, that we are being sold, not just, we're not just being sold a tech, a tool. We're being sold an anxiety. Um, and, and we don't need to be, we don't need to believe it. We, we can teach around it. Um, so I think that's another piece of that digital literacy. That I think is so important is that we recognize that that where the messages are coming from and what choices we actually have in this situation. That that's absolutely fantastic. I love that uh, we're being sold an anxiety, and I don't know for me as an academic developer, that is so much what I see and perhaps what I'm contributing to. So I'm going to be more mindful of that. Uh, Dustin, I do want to say. Thank you so much for playing the devil's advocate, or unless you actually hold those views, I think that's cool too. I think it's very easy to kind of, not very easy, but sometimes it's easy, at least for me, to kind of fall into this thing of being critical uh, and, and not often thinking about the practicalities or even that one can hold a critical point of view and still disadvantage others. So I, I think it's really great that you're, you know, you've highlighted these issues and at a practical level, it kind of does make sense in a lot of cases. Uh, so, so thanks. That was a, that was a very interesting conversation. Any, any other follow up questions or any other questions that are lurking around in I, people's heads? 
Yeah, I would actually love to bring up um, an idea. That, so as we're talking, there seems to be um, underlying all of this, there seems to be kind of an urgency to talk about our philosophy and talk about what does it mean now that we are, now that teaching is encountering technology in this way. Um, and so I'm wondering, especially right now during during the whole coronavirus COVID thing, um, when all of us are, are dealing with this in a, in a way that we've never had to deal with it before, there's people who never taught online, never wanted to teach online, who are suddenly teaching online. Um, what are the risks right now if we don't take this time um, to rethink our philosophy behind education and teaching, if we don't take this time to sort of reevaluate what's going on with um, technology and education? I'm going to jump in here first. Um, if you'll remember from the introduction from uh, Leanne, you know, I'm, I'm part of the Decolonizing Collective. Um, and, and my, you know, I, my doctorate was on critical pedagogies. I, I am of the school of Balfour and bell hooks and, you know, I am, you know, anti the banking method of education, very much seeing the counter hegemonic possibilities of education as a means of critiquing the system, reimagining the system and potentially creating more equitable systems, um, thinking from a decolonizing perspective, understanding how the colonial project on a global sense created a sort of a system of education that values a particular type of knowledge and a particular type of knower that is very white European and how we need to be breaking those barriers. And I think the biggest risk, if we don't go back, if we don't take this time to step back and go, oh, why are we here? Why do we teach what we teach? And should we be teaching other things that we are going to further entrench these inequalities that we're going to further entrench these ways of teaching that suit only certain groups that elevate only those that are already coming from privileged positions that, you know, this, this banking model of education will continue where it's teaching at and the student goes away, but it's more than that. It's also education that produces an elite. So education for the elite looks very different than education for um, the, the, the uh, lower socioeconomic statuses for those from the global South as the global South are forced to learn what, you know, the North did, you know, and the enlightenment. Well, why is the enlightenment what that is like? And so unless we stop, and go, wait a second, is this really what we should be doing? Because we're at a point where we're changing, where we have to change anyway. That if we don't use this time where we're forced to change anyway, to really go, oh, wait a second, why do we even exist as institutions? And why do we teach? And why are we in higher education? And why do we have students? That we're just going to entrench these inequalities deeper and deeper and it's going to be more, you know, you know, those who have great spaces at home, those who have great internet, those who don't, you know, who have spouses who will take care of the kids or who are, don't have, um, you know, and we're just going to see that elite class get further as those who have all these other structural issues that keep them from engaging be blocked even further from engaging. So I think we really need to rethink that. So that's, I feel like I've rambled, but that's my pulpit. Okay. What do you guys think? Well, for some programs in the UK, I mean, it is all, it is about the money <clears throat> because they bring in over 23,000 pounds, 20,000 pounds per year if they're international students. 
Um, but it doesn't mean that those students aren't well cared for. So I know that on one of the programs that they do charge such high fees on uh, because they are international students. And it's the same way in the U.S. In the U.S., um, a lot of programs for international students are expensive. They're not cheap. What I was going to say is they do get, I guess, their money's worth when I was helping lectures in question because they were very sensitive to their audience. They were trying to make sure that the students had as good experience as possible. But on the flip side, when I interviewed some students post-COVID-19 about their experiences, uh, they enjoyed, they said that they enjoyed uh, the kind of shift to digital. They think lecturers are doing as best as they can. Uh, but maybe those were privileged students, you know. Uh, maybe they had good internet connections at home, good technology, so they didn't have an experience of having digital poverty, for example, or living in a house where there was a lot of other people, uh, which there are a lot of students who do have that. I mean, my university, we have, like most big universities, I think, in the UK and the US, it's, it's a public university, uh, but it does draw upon the local area so there are quite a lot of community commuter students and so we don't know their living situations uh you know we don't know as i think sean said earlier who's how many people they're sharing the internet with as sarah said earlier their technology i mean probably most of our students do have a laptop because i mean uh, just going upon uh, based on where i work i think a lot of students do have their own if if they don't uh, there are laptops they can borrow on campus, but obviously we don't, from what I know, I don't know if we've conducted a survey on what students have and what they don't have. So it'd be good to do that. Uh, I think years ago at another university I worked at, they did do that, but that was a very different university. They gave the students, Sean might like this, uh, they gave students all their books as part of their fees. Of course, it was part of the banking model. No fees, no extra fees. No, what is it? No little jingle like... No added fees. I think that's what it was. <laughs> they all had this thing. Some universities give them tablets with preloaded ebooks. I mean, but it is a tablet. Um, so some universities are trying to deal with this to, to level the playing field. And I know as an American student, it would have been wonderful having free books because books were the most expensive, unexpected cost. In the UK, I don't know if the books are as expensive. I think they might be. But yeah. That, that's a fantastic question. Uh, sorry, Sarah, did you want to come in? I just wanted to challenge Dustin slightly on the assumptions behind what he was saying, like this notion of you pay, you, you pay for a good education, they're getting value for money. Like that's a philosophical question to me. Like, is that what higher education is? Is it a private good that you buy access to and then you determine the value for money based on how you're taught? Or if we're talking about the philosophy behind our teaching, are we teaching for something else? Um, so I would just challenge that under that, there's there's an assumption as to why we exist and therefore why we charge fees. And if we don't sit down and question that, we run the risk of it getting worse. Well, interestingly, I'm applying for PhDs and as I was looking, I noticed that they all costed, costed they all cost different amounts of money. Um, which didn't make sense because they were all from, you know, the UK. They were all from good subject departments. It didn't matter what the institution was, although the prices did some, seem somewhat linked to the institution. So, yeah, I would say that, no, the money you pay should be 
somewhat equal to the quality, but it's not always. Um, and having had done the masters in the UK uh, years ago, I think it was linked more to the name of the institution rather than the quality of the, the actual program, which it is an ethical question because you're sold on the institution's name and programs are writing on the, you know, I also studied at Middlebury, Sean, I don't know if you knew that, did my Russian studies there. Um, and it was good, but at certain points I felt I didn't always fit because it was very Northwestern, very kind of for a certain class of American that I'd never met before coming from Dallas, Texas. Anyway, I'll stop there. That's really quite interesting, Dustin, because I mean, that, you know, the whole value of education is driven by what the market will support. So it's very much in keeping with the kind of, you know, neoliberal agenda in the UK, definitely. Uh, I, I thought that was a really interesting question and really interesting responses. And it's kind of made me think, rethink, uh, or think more deeply about some things. And, and, and again, I think, as you mentioned, you know, Sarah, uh, about the kind of privilege we, we have. So it's interesting uh, at the beginning, so in March or so, when we were thinking about this and the center was kind of gearing up to, to meet this demand for online education. And I remember somebody saying this, never let a good crisis go to waste. You know, it's a great opportunity uh, for us to kind of uh, rethink this whole question of what education should be, what digital education should be, should it be, you know, this poor country cousin to this face-to-face -face education. One of the things I did think is for a lot of people, it's not their first crisis. You know, you have, uh, for, for, for people in the West, yeah, perhaps, but, but not in places like Syria that have you know, experienced war and mass displacement, not in places like Palestine, where people are fighting for much more than an education and things that are much greater than that, not in places like India where, you know, 10 million die of tuberculosis or something, maybe it's not 10 million, but it's, it's a huge number. Uh, and for these places, this is not their first crisis. So I think it, it, is, it does present an opportunity. And again, I think it presents an opportunity for people who are not likely to be affected by the crisis in ways that are more serious than having their education interrupted uh, or you know, things of that sort, uh, or having to put in more hours to switch from face-to-face -to, -face to online. Uh, but, but I think we can use this as an opportunity uh, to learn perhaps from others who've already dealt with this rather than assuming that, you know, all the answers lie with, with people who haven't been used to crises of this scale. Uh, to learn from, from the Syrians, from the Palestinians, from the Indians, from other people who have a lot more experience dealing with this. How does higher education uh, you know, factor into their plans, into their lives, into their policies. So, so I think perhaps looking a bit outwards uh, is, is also helpful. Yeah, this has been a really interesting discussion. Um, I, I've noticed that regardless of the question we're addressing, sort of certain things seem to pop up, especially along the lines of, um, in the end, it's about thinking about why we teach. So yes, it's the philosophy question, but even more narrowly, okay, what is it I'm teaching in this course? Why am I teaching it? And then moving into, then what does that mean online? That in the end, the digital is about 
the teaching and the education and the learning that's already going on and that we hope to. And then that in turn shapes even whether or not we use learning analytics, which we had different views on, right? And some of us felt strongly against and some for that notion of, okay, well, if we use it more thinking about what are we doing? Why do we, why do we teach this certain way? Then maybe these tools start to work for us. Um, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. It was uh, great to talk to you about this, and it's really, it's, it's given me a chance to reflect on, on what's going on right now, but also what this means moving into the next academic year immediately, but also moving into the next couple of years. Like, is this going to change how I teach more broadly? Um, thank you, Sean. Thank you, Dustin. And very much thank you, Leanne. And um, I'm sure we'll still be in touch. Thank you. Great. Thanks Thank you so much. Paul. Thanks for thanks for you know everyone being able to show up and making it into some really really interesting conversations.